Well, open up your Bibles once again to the book of Acts, please. The book of Acts. And today we're going to be in chapter 24. If you're with us for the first time, we go through whole books of the Bible, verse by verse, and see what the Lord has for us to feast upon on His Word. Let's pray and ask God's blessing and uh, for Him to do His work through His Word as He has promised today. Father, thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your word. We stand here amazed as we can open up your holy word, breathed out by your mouth. Father, do your work in us. Sanctify your people. Draw sinners to repentance that they may believe in you. Lord, you know what every person must do today and what you need to do in them. Glorify yourself through the preaching of your holy word. In your name, amen. Last week we saw that the Apostle Paul, who was a prisoner at this point, was taken by night to the city of Caesarea. He was in Jerusalem. And he was sent there from Jerusalem to Caesarea by a Roman commander named Lysias, who feared for his life because he had become aware of a Jewish plot to ambush Paul and kill him. This was discovered because Paul's nephew happened to hear of a plot and made it known to Paul, who then told the commander. He's being accused by the Jews of things he did not commit. They want him dead. But he's a Roman citizen. And in the eyes of the Romans, he's done nothing worthy of death or punishment. So when Paul arrives in Caesarea, he arrives to a man called Felix, the governor. And Felix puts Paul into protective custody until his accusers arrive. And we've seen how the sovereign hand of God is interwoven through every detail of the story. That Paul was a Pharisee, born in uh, Tarsus of Cilicia, that he was a Roman citizen. Every little bit of his life is for the glory of God and advancing the will of God in this story. And we saw how that's true of our lives. That nothing happens by accident. That everything is ordained by God for his good. For his glory and our good. And so... Paul has been told by the Lord Jesus that he is to go to Rome and to share Christ there. And that is where this story is taking us. But for now, he's been taken to Caesarea with Felix the governor. Let's look at chapter 24, verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders And a spokesman, one of Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. So now five days has transpired. The word gets to Ananias, the high priest, who was planning an ambush on Paul, that Paul is no longer in Jerusalem, that he's been taken to Caesarea. And so five days later, Ananias gets up with some of his entourage, and they arrive in Caesarea to go before Felix the governor 
to bring their accusations against Paul. And he arrives there with some of the elders of Israel and also Tertullus, which he's basically a lawyer. He's going to be the spokesperson for the high priest in this trial. And what's about to unfold is a, is a courtroom drama. We all love courtroom dramas. We all love to see them play out, see the plot twists and the surprising things that come up in a jury trial and what the judge says and the witnesses say. This is really what chapter 24 is about. It's a courtroom situation. Paul is the defendant and the accusers are coming now to bring their case. Look at verse 2. When he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, that's Paul, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, and every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. So here is the Jewish lawyer flattering the governor, Felix, by giving him high praise. This is not unusual as, as when you address uh, an official of Felix's stature, you, of course, begin with all the niceties up front, complimenting him, of course, hoping to get on his good side. But there is nothing here that Tertullus says that is true. It's all a lie. They want, to, they want Felix to be on their side to kill Paul, to execute him. And so, for example, he says, and he's thanking Felix, the Roman governor, for giving the Jews peace. The Jews weren't under a time of peace at all. In fact, underneath the rule of Felix, they saw the most civil unrest than any other Roman leader. He was a very despised Roman leader by the Jewish people. And here's the Jewish lawyer saying, through you we enjoy much peace. He's a liar. It just wasn't true. He also thanked him for the reforms that were being made for this nation. What reforms? There's no reforms being made to help the Jewish people. The Jews were miserable underneath Felix and the Roman Empire. And he gets away from the flattery and the niceties. And he finally says, I don't want to waste your time. I know your time is precious. I don't want to keep you any longer. So please listen to us about what we're about to say. Look at verse 5. And this is what he says about Paul. For we have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. And is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in this charge, affirming that all these things were so. He essentially has three accusations against Paul in verses 5, 6, and 7. The first one is that Paul is guilty of creating civil unrest. The second one is that he causes political unrest. And the third one is that he causes religious unrest. 
These are his, their accusations against Paul. Civil, political, and religious. And he calls Paul a plague. The word plague there comes from the word pestilence. Essentially, what he's calling him is he's a pest. It's where pestilence, is the word pest comes from pestilence. The etymology there of that word. He's causing trouble everywhere he goes like a plague. Even for the Roman Empire. He causes riots among the Jewish people. Here's a civil unrest everywhere he goes. They are upset at him. And the reason they start with this charge against Paul is this. Because this is what would be the most concerning for the Romans. The Romans did not take lightly any disruption to their rule of peace. You've probably heard of the Pax Romana, that the Romans prided themselves. This is the peace of Rome. Anyone violating the Pax Romana would be guilty of death. So they start at the top, going for the gut, for the jugular, to see what would get him the most upset against Paul. They prided themselves on this. Civil unrest causing riots. The second thing he says is he causes political unrest. He's a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Of course, Jesus of Nazareth. The Christians also got this title of being Nazarenes or connected to where Jesus was from. But they called it a sect. This was like a political uprising. There were groups in the Roman Empire that would come, just like that Egyptian assassin that we learned about a few weeks ago, that would come and cause trouble in the Roman Empire. Here they're trying to paint Paul as a leader, of basically of a political organization, political zealots that just want to fight against Caesar. They come from the Nazarenes. And, listen to this, he is their ringleader. He is the ringleader of a group who's causing political turmoil in Nazareth and all around the world against Caesar. And again, that's something that would have stood out to the Romans. They cared about these charges. And then, of course, they come to the third one, which is really the thing they care most about, which is the religious unrest. They say that he profaned the temple. He brought a Gentile in, but we stopped him. And we know that's not true. We know that that was hearsay and not founded upon anything. But they hated Paul anyway, and they tried to get him in trouble any way they could. And again, the reason they bring this up, because what would the Romans care about that? Well, the Roman Empire actually gave the Jewish leaders permission to prosecute Gentiles who entered the temple courts. They really didn't need the permission of the Roman Empire to execute Gentiles who profane the temple. There's a little problem with Paul, though. They can't just execute Paul without permission because he's not just any other Jew. He's a Jew who happens to be what? A Roman citizen. You can't execute a Roman citizen. So if Paul wasn't a Roman citizen, no big deal. But he even tried to profane the temple. And this is to get on Felix's good side. Well, you guys have the authority then. No, that's the accusation. They needed the Romans' approval to put him to death because he was a citizen. So they rest their case. Now, I'm sure that this is the abbreviated version of the trial. Luke is recording for us, of course, the events here. And I'm sure it went on a lot longer. But Luke summarizes us for us the points that they bring up there 
through verse 9. So, he's a pest to Rome, causing civil unrest and violating and profaning religious things in the temple. Now we go to Paul. It's Paul's turn to give a defense of himself. Not the first time he does this. I think this is the third defense that Paul gives. Look at verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Notice the difference between Paul's opening statement and the Jewish lawyer Tertullus. Tertullus flattered him with lies. What does Paul do? He just states the facts. I'm glad to talk to you because you've been here for a few years. No lies there. Respectful of his office. And he begins his defense. Paul's not going to flatter the man for his own causes. First he addresses the civil unrest. Three accusations, three defenses. Here's the first one, verse 11. You can verify, Paul says, that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. What's Paul saying? There is no evidence of their claim. They're bringing up these accusations, but they cannot prove it. And let me just tell you, why? Since I first arrived in Jerusalem and was arrested, since then it's been 12 days. And already five days have, has elapsed since then. So this, these things are not happening all that long ago. I was arrested on the spot. In 12 days, how much of an upheaval could I cause in getting a rebellion to begin in Jerusalem against Rome? 12 days to unite a city when there's no Twitter or Facebook? Come on now, that's a tall task. He's saying it's only been 12 days. And I didn't go there to cause unrest or to cause a dispute or a riot. What did I do? I went there to worship. I went there to worship my God. Look what he says in verse 11. You can verify this. You can prove it. I went there 12 days ago to worship, not to cause trouble. They did not find me disputing. I didn't argue with anyone. I didn't stir up a crowd, nothing. In fact, Paul was doing the opposite. He was going to the temple to worship, to purify himself under the direction of the elders in Jerusalem because they knew what was coming and they wanted to calm the waters. And so they sent Paul to the temple to pay the vows of the, of the, uh, the men who were doing the Nazarite vows and also to purify himself as well. So they would see that he's not against God's law. Or against Moses. Paul says, come on. I went there to worship. There was not even a crowd gathered. There was no unrest. I just went there to worship my God. And you can prove these facts. This is verifiable. It didn't even happen that long ago. Hmm. And Paul's right. 
The civil unrest came when the Jews from Asia came to falsely accuse him and caused a mob scene in the city that Paul would have died on the spot if it wasn't for the Romans coming to arrest him and find out what was going on. That's the first accusation. Civil unrest? I went there to worship. We didn't do anything. The facts will prove that is true. Look at verse 14. He addresses the second accusation, which is political unrest. They accused him of being the ringleader of a political zealot group that wanted to overthrow Rome. Well, what does Paul say to that? Look at verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God, both God and man. What does Paul say? I don't belong to a political zealot group. They're wanting us to believe that and to, and to label us like that. But I do confess that I belong to a group. And it's called the way. And the reason it's called the way, as we know already, because it's mentioned several times in the book of Acts thus far, this is what these first Christians were called back then, the way and why. Because they went around telling people that Jesus said he is the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. We're not a political group. We are a religious one. We are not here to overthrow Rome. We're here to worship the God of our fathers. And listen to what He says here Who do we worship? We worship the God of our fathers. Now he's talking to Felix, the governor. He's a Roman. He's not a Jew. But he's talking to who? The Jews that are accusing him. The group that they say is a political zealot trying to overthrow Rome and cause all this trouble is the same God that our ancestors worshipped. Who is that? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we have the same God. They think we're some fringe group. But yet I worship the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. We have the same God as my accusers. And how do we worship this God? Look what he says here. So important. In verse 14. I worship the God of our fathers. Believing everything. Laid down by the law and written in the prophets. How do we worship this God? I believe what he says. Do you think Paul had a doctrine of the authority of scripture in his life? What propelled Paul to worship? The word of God. I believe everything written in the law and the prophets. That's a way to say the Old Testament. Right? The Old Testament. The first five books is, is the law. The prophets is everything else. A way to summarize everything else. What did Paul think of those scriptures? It was the word of God himself. Where do I get my information how to worship this God? The same place they do. 
Not only do we have the same God, we have the same book. We have the same book. It is the word of God that gives him his conviction of what he believes. Yeah, we could say Paul. Paul believed in sola scriptura before it was cool to do so. Right? Paul believed in the scripture alone being his authority. This is where we get this truth. This is where we can get this belief. But so here is Paul standing before him. He's met the risen Christ. And the high priest is there. The elders are there. The the Jewish leaders are there. How can they come to such a different conclusion of what Paul believes? You see, here's something that we must understand and be careful when we explain. Christianity is not meant to be a different religion. Christianity is not a different religion. It's like you have, you know, in the Old Testament, God wanted everyone to be Jewish. And in the New Testament, and now everyone's Christian. Everyone's a new, it's a new religion. No. Christianity is the fulfillment of everything promised in and through Judaism. It's not something new. It's just the complete picture of what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were promised. It's nothing new. It's the great completion. If what those men, it's what those men long to see. It's what those men hoped to see in their day. It was those things that God gave them that led them to a faith in God to say that God keeps his promises and he will not give up on his people and the Messiah is coming. Well, he came and Paul met him and he can't believe anything else but him. Christ is the substance of everything promised through Judaism. Judaism is not the result of, and it's not the end result of everything they believe in. It's just a shadow of the things to come in the substance is Christ. This is what Paul is standing here believing. We're not some political zealot group, new religion, whatever they want to call us. We believe the same God. We have the same book. The only difference is we believe and Christ has shown us and God has shown us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of it all. He's the promise of a new world. Think think about the things that Paul believed. Man destroyed this world with sin. God gave us a garden. Made covenants. We rebelled against God. But in Christ, who is the new Adam, God is making it new. Making a new people whole in him. Removing the curse of sin. And at the end of the ages, it's a return to the original. New heavens and new earth. The garden is back and even better than before. It's the promise of obedience. Adam was placed in the garden charged with headship. Over creation, over animals, over his wife. He failed. He failed miserably. 
And now Jesus, as the second Adam, comes and has now been given all authority on heaven and on earth and headship over all things, including his bride, the church. But unlike Adam, he does not fail. He does not sin. He does not fall short. He is the He is the greater Adam. He was what Adam was supposed to be, but could never live up to. And Jesus now comes and he does for man what man could never do. Is it any wonder that Adam's first test was one of obedience in the garden? And of course he failed when he and Eve ate of the fruit. Is it any coincidence that Jesus' first test was also one of obedience? Here Jesus, at 30 years old, begins his public ministry, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And you know the story, he comes to be tempted, what? By the devil. And then Satan is tempting him and luring him to sin and to distrust God. And his word and his promises. Adam was placed in a perfect environment. And he failed God. Adam had everything that could have been given to him. The food out of any tree in the garden was his. He had a wife. He had work. And work back then was a good thing, okay? No curse. Work was a joy. By the way, that's a whole other sermon. Work is supposed to be a joy. Don't think you're going to be in heaven one day just eternally retired. God has created you for good works for the rest of eternity. (laughs) Anyway, I need to stick to this. Uh, And here's Jesus in an imperfect environment. Middle of the wilderness. Hasn't eaten for 40 days. Hungry, thirsty, tired. At his weakest point. And what does Jesus do? Does he cave to temptation? No. He does what Adam could never do. He obeys God. In Adam we all die. In Christ we all live. The promise of the defeating the serpent. The first gospel promise is in Genesis 3.15. As it was promised that the seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is that serpent crusher who defeats the enemies of God forever. Even looking at stories like David and Goliath. Tells us of the complete and fulfillment that Jesus brings to creation. Even looking at this story of David and Goliath. We see David. The underdog, right? David, who was coming. He was offended at Goliath yelling obscenities against his God. He goes and defeats Goliath, slinging the stone into his forehead, collapsing Goliath, chopping off his head, and all the people of God run in victory over the enemies. Some maybe you've heard that story like you're David. Like just pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. That's not the point of that story. 
The point of the story is not for you to be like David, but to know that you need a greater David that was to come. A David who can come for the honor and glory of God. A David who can come to defeat your real enemy, which is not your little problems in life. But the real enemy of your life is your own sin. Which crushes your heart. Which causes you to be dead and lost. And only Jesus can come to defeat that giant. Jesus is the greater Moses who comes to deliver the people of God. His elect out of bondage and slavery from their spiritual Egypt. Which is their sin. And by defeating their sin, he leads them in victory to the promised land. Again and again we see story after story in the Old Testament. And they all point to Christ. The Passover lamb. The two goats. Abraham and Isaac. Time does not allow us to go into the glories of this analogy. I would encourage you, if you don't have a copy of it yet, out in the Welcome Center, there's a copy, a book called The Two, called Shadows of the Gospel, that I wrote last year, that helps unwrap some of these things. Please take it as our gift to you. What is Paul saying? I'm not a political zealot. These guys don't care about political or civil things. They care about one thing. They know I'm a follower of the risen Christ who I know to be the Messiah. They don't believe he's, he's it. They hate me because of that. That's why they hate me. This is a religious problem. This is a religious problem. Look at verse 17. After several years I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Again, Paul addresses this religious accusation. I was in town to bring an offering for the poor. This is what Paul was doing on his third missionary journey, if you remember. He's going around the churches that he had started in his second missionary journey and raising up an offering to bring back to the poor saints in Jerusalem who were going through a severe famine. They needed help. And Paul raised that help by collecting these monies from around the world to bring back to Jerusalem. It was at that moment that they arrested him for causing political unrest. Paul says, what's my crime? I came here to bring an offering to help. I was worshiping, purifying myself, even following their rules in the temple. Everything was fine until they showed up. He says, look, let's face it. You want to get down to the nitty gritty? Here's the problem. They have a religious disagreement with me. And what is it? I believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's what I believe. Of course, Paul is speaking of the resurrection of Christ. But he's also alluding to the resurrection that the Pharisees believed, but the Sadducees didn't. It's a religious disagreement we're having here. And why does Paul bring that up? Because the Romans don't care about that. Paul wants the Romans to see that I've done nothing against you. They're just mad at me and using all this extra stuff to get me in trouble. But let's face it, it's, they have no evidence to prove anything. 
anything at all. This all comes to a religious disagreement. Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but had some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Felix, interestingly, interestingly, we know here from this passage, he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Felix knows about these Christians. Felix, I'm sure, has heard the gospel from these Christians. He's tried other cases before him in his court of what? Christians. He knows what it is Paul believed. He's heard the gospel. He's had access to Christians and to the word. That even Luke says, intellectually, he knows the gospel. Intellectually, he knows the truth. But obviously, he's not a believer. What does Felix do? He delays everything. Uh, When Lysias comes, I'll make a decision. Lysias was the guy who sent him to Felix. And until then, let's keep Paul in custody. He's not free to go. He's being detained. But treat him nice and make sure his friends can come and go and see him and talk to him and bring him what he needs. Again, we see the sovereignty of God and that the only reason this is possible is because of Paul's Roman citizenship at all. This man knows Christians. This man knows what Christians believe. He delays the verdict and Paul remains in custody. Look at verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla who is Jewish. So after, we don't know how long. After some days, weeks, months, we don't know. He came, Felix, the governor, came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Interesting point. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Go get me Paul. I want to hear what he has to say about his faith. Do you think Paul objected to that? The governor wants to see me? Let's go. The governor wants to hear about Jesus? Yeah. Look at verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness... And self-control and the coming judgment. Now, Paul's message is cut and dry. He preaches about righteousness. What could that mean? Felix, you're a sinner. You are not righteous, Felix. God is alone righteous. He is holy. He is the judge of all the world. And one day you will stand before him and have to give an account because you are not righteous. About self-control. 
Felix, you can't do whatever you want and get away with it. You may do so as the Roman commander because you have some prestige and power because of your position. But self-control, you better learn what God requires of you, Felix. Because you just can't do whatever you want. You will have to stand before him. Why? And the coming judgment. Felix, one day, you have, you have other people in your court and you make decisions about their situation. But one day, you will be the defendant standing before a holy God. One day, you will have to say an answer for everything you have said or have done. Especially about what you have done with Christ. What you have done with Christ. Paul preaches repentance to this man. The boldness of Paul is amazing. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to beat around the bush. He just calls the man and tells him the truth. It's the way it ought to be, right? It's the way it ought to be. Repent of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or you will face his wrath. Period. How does Felix respond? Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. He didn't like what he heard. He didn't like being called a sinner. He didn't like being told he was going to stand before God and have to face his judgment. He was alarmed. Again, this man hears the truth. He hears the gospel. He has access and an opportunity to believe. And he tells Paul, hey, go, go away for now. I'll, I'll let you know when I'm ready for you again. Hmm. At that same time, verse 26, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. You mean the governor wants to talk to me again? Oh, okay, sure. And what does Paul do? He goes and he preaches the gospel again to Felix. We're not told how many times, but Luke says that Felix called for Paul often. But however, just so you'd know the heart of Felix and what a crook he is, he's not there because he's genuinely interested in being saved or becoming a Christian. He wants Paul because he's hoping at some point down the way, Paul gets tired of being in custody. And Paul could say, you know, all the money I got from around the world, I could hook you up if you let me go. He wants a bribe. He wants a bribe from Paul. Paul has no interest. Paul would rather be locked up and continue to share the gospel with this man. Just think about that for a moment. Paul wasn't giving in. He wasn't taking his hints of bribery. And so what happens? Look at verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Two years. Years goes by. 
Remember, he said, when Lysias comes up, I'll decide your case. Two years goes by. And the only thing Paul has to show is continued gospel conversations with the Roman governor. But his freedom is not to be found. Amazing. Where is God in this? Doesn't God care about Paul? How can God let Paul go through that? How can God let Paul stay there for two years in prison? God knows exactly what he wants of Paul. God knows exactly why he put Paul there. Why? To share the gospel with the Roman governor. You see, what you may look at, at Paul, poor Paul, I feel so sorry for him. God is using that for his glory to share the gospel with this lost man who obviously could care less about Jesus, could care less about the truth. He just wants to please himself and get bribed. But I'm going to tell you that there is judgment coming for this man. Think of the opportunities of the truth that he had There's people in this world who will die and never hear the gospel. And the Bible says in Romans 1, they are without excuse, even then. God doesn't owe anyone an opportunity to hear the truth. We're sinners who rebel against him and we are his enemy. That's how we're born like. We don't, God doesn't owe us any opportunity to hear any gospel. It's only by his grace he allows us to hear it. But here's this man with un fettered access to the Apostle Paul. Can't imagine standing before a holy God and realizing the rejection that took place here. And some of you are just like Felix. Some of you in this room are without Christ. Some of you watching online are without Christ. And you've heard the gospel, so you could recite it from memory, but it hasn't gotten any further than your brain. No further than your intellect. Remember, Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Maybe you've been in church since day one. But it's very possible to be in church since day one of your life and not know the Lord Jesus in a saving way. It's not intellectual facts that will trust, that, that takes you to heaven, that gives you a right relationship with God. It's trust and faith in the risen Christ. Knowing that you are a sinner who stands in judgment before him. And the only way to be saved is to believe in the Lord Jesus who died for your sins, who became your substitute, who endured the wrath of God on your behalf. And that he rose again from the dead. And that your trust and faith is in him. In him alone. The the promise is that whosoever believes will be saved. That whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And yet, some of you, it falls upon deaf ears because you are intellectually deceived that you are a Christian. That is the most sobering thing as a pastor to think about. That people who hear me every week could be in hell forever. 
This is nothing to play games with. Eternity is at stake. And the Lord Jesus even warned us that in that day there will be many people who come to him in that day. Say, Lord, I've cast out demons in your name. I've done this for you, Lord. I've done this. I've been a Sunday school teacher. I've been a deacon. I've been whatever. The only thing the Lord Jesus responds with is, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. The most tragic thing is not to die at an early age. The most tragic thing is to hear repeated, repeated gospel presentations. To hear the word of God week in and week out and die and go to hell. And my friends, I will not let you do that without telling you again and again and plead for you to trust and repent in the Lord Jesus and be saved. There is no other way. There is no other way but to believe in him. And yet some of our prides will take us to hell. Because how can I tell people I'm a Christian now? Or that I am not a Christian now or I've never been a Christian. What would the people think of me? Who cares what they think of you? Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. There's many people who have grown up their whole lives and realized I was never a believer. And I'm not trying to scare anyone here this morning. I just want to call you to examine your heart. And you can never say that I didn't warn you. You can never say that I never told you the truth. You can never say that Dan never told you the gospel. Let us not have a Felix among us who hears the gospel again and again. Hears the word of God again and again. And they're nothing but a false convert. They're trusting in some prayer, they said. They're trusting in their baptism. They're trusting in their church membership. They're trusting in their good works. But not Christ alone. Oh, brothers and sisters. And for everyone in this room, I love you. Take this time to examine your heart. Not to doubt your salvation, but to really examine if you are in Christ. Has there been change in your life? Has there been fruit in your life? Do you have desires? Do you have a battle and a war against sin? Do you have a desire to read God's word like you're a hungry baby? Examine your hearts and be saved. And how you get saved is not by saying a prayer or believing a certain set of information. It's trusting in the Lord Jesus and what he's done for you. That he died and rose again. That's the gospel. And whoever believes that will be saved. Repent. Repent. And believe. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you know hearts in this room. You know the hearts of every person. Lord, let there not be a Felix among us. People who have an accurate understanding of the way, but do not know Christ in a saving way. They can quote you all the Bible verses and facts from memory, 
But there's no love of Christ in their heart and no war against sin, no evidence of repentance in their life. Father, we pray today that they would, right now, trust you. Trust you, God. Believe the gospel. Only your spirit can do this in their hearts. You know who are yours. Remove blinders. Open up their ears to let them hear. Give them new birth to place faith in Christ. Father, for those of us who are believers, God, we also come to this time in our service where we must examine our hearts as well, not to see if we are saved, but to examine our hearts for sin, for confession, and obey what you've commanded us to do in the Lord's table. May you strengthen our faith with the presence of Christ as we partake together as a family, knowing that we have believed Help us now to confess and repent of sin and remember the Lord Jesus and to strengthen our faith. Thank you for this means of grace in our life and I pray that you would use it for your glory. So Lord, whatever is in the hearts of those who are hearing, whether they need to repent and trust Christ or they must remember you, confess and examine their hearts at this table. We pray you would do your work through your spirit for the glory of your name. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. The deacons would join me up front. We will observe the Lord's table at this time.